Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Christina Moulton. Based in Ottawa, Canada, the nation's capital, uh, Christina is an iOS app developer who works on creating apps for iPhone and iPad at her company, Teak Mobile. She also writes tutorials for developers working in the Swift programming language. Um, and there's also a mysterious reference in her LeanPub bio to sailing that I'm going to be asking her about. Um, Christina is the author of the LeanPub book, iOS Apps with REST APIs, Building Web-Driven Apps in Swift. Her book is focused on helping readers build their first app using Swift in a way that is not overwhelming, or as she puts it, giving you only the nitty-gritty that you need to get real work done now. In this interview, we're going to talk about Christina's professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk about her experience using LeanPub a little bit. So thank you, Christina, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thanks, Len. Thanks for having me. Um, I always like to start my interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how you got interested in um, programming and how you ended up being an iOS developer. Sure. I actually thought being a programmer for a really long time. Uh, when I was 18, I was facing down the what do I do for school, what happens after high school thing, uh, and ended up going to Waterloo for systems design engineering, mostly because their co-op program meant I only had to do four months of school at a time, and because it was kind of a choose-your-own-adventure engineering, so they make you take all the core engineering requirements for licensing in the first two and a half, three years, and then you have to put together a defensible uh, curriculum for your fourth year, and the list of electives you can pick from is something like a thousand courses long. Uh, I ended up taking a lot of math and a lot of geography, uh, combinatorics and optimization mostly. The mathematicians had really interesting techniques and the geographers had piles of data and they just didn't seem to ever get together and apply the techniques to the data. I uh, did a little bit of grad school after that, just continuing on with the project I've been playing with with that. So that was a tiny little bit of programming, but in that very messy, horrible academic way. Uh, cobbling MATLAB together with a little bit of Python and just trying to get stuff to spit out data, really. Uh, then I graduated, and as it seems to work out, the jobs were mostly in software. So I ended up at a small environmental, um, I guess environmental software company. They did a little bit of, of teaching and, and training as well. And they built software for environmental emissions modeling. So the government said, you know, if you have a factory in Canada, you have to run this Fortran model and spit out this data and make sure that, you know, you weren't putting out too much emission on days that had certain weather and all below. So they built a nice GUI around that. And that was interesting. Uh, it was fun. That was actually on Delphi, which uh, was a wonderful language that I'll probably never use again. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I actually interviewed someone who was on early on the Delphi team just the other day. Yeah, it was. There were some great things about it that we just don't get anymore with data binding and and stuff. That it, it seems like it's taken us a very long time to get back to the maturity that they had in certain features. Um, so yeah, eventually I got bored with that and ended up moonlighting a little bit for a guy who had worked at Apple and had a little bit of contract work in iOS development. And then he slowly got more and more demand for that. I started working for him more and more. Um, and then ended up spending, I think, about two years, actually, uh, working with a little consulting firm that he had just doing contract work. Uh, and eventually got tired of, of working for someone else. And uh, I didn't want to be all project manager, and I didn't want to be all coder. And it just seemed better to go off on my own and pick up my own contract so that I could, 
you know, so that the salesperson was the person writing the code so that I didn't have to deal with all the internal communication that always seems to get lost inside an organization that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, being independent is something a lot of people are drawn to, um, for a lot of different reasons, even though it comes with its own burdens and responsibilities. Um, uh, I was wondering actually, um, if you could explain a little bit about what you learn when you learn systems design engineering. The theory is that you're supposed to learn how engineering works um, and the the different methodologies and things that fall behind stuff. The reality is you still have to take fluid mechanics and you know, whatever, the same math and the same half of the same courses. Um, but we did have probably about a quarter of the curriculum that was either design focused. Uh, so even in my very first term, they made us take you know the mandatory drafting course, which I'm terrible at, uh, but they also managed to shove into the curriculum with that, uh, how to, a little design project course and bring in people on things like idea generation and uh, creativity and focus and how to to work beyond what is just a, a simple mechanical problem into something that's, that's broader and larger. Uh, and some of the guest speakers in that were, you know, people who ran art studios and, um, even at that very first term when we were getting exposed to a lot of user-centered design, a lot of user experience stuff, uh, second year we had a course that had um, a lot, a lot of the, the user experience, user-centered design. Uh, and somehow we fit that in because it was supposed to be half how to design, but the curriculum was kind of how to um, avoid engineering mishaps. <laughs> And so instead of just saying, hey, if you build a bridge like this, the bridge is going to fall down, it's like, okay, well, what kind of organization and design and thought process led to the Tacoma Narrows Bridge? Why did they miss that? Why did they not think of that? Um, so yeah, a lot of the psychology and the thought process behind stuff. And I think we had three or four design courses that were explicitly go do a project with facilitated guest speakers, usually with a bit of a focus early on idea generation, later on improving, refining, uh, that kind of stuff. And is that um, bridge collapse that you refer to, is that the one from which uh, Canadian engineering grads um, rings are made? I've heard that story. Okay. Um, they may have been originally, they're not anymore. Okay. Uh, there's too many rings. The bridge wouldn't have been big enough. Okay. Yeah. I had a friend who, um, uh, in when I was in my undergrad days, who, told me that story about how um, when Canadian, when people graduate from engineering programs in Canada, they get a ring and that the ring was sort of by legend, at least um, fashioned from metal from a bridge collapse and the engineers wear this to remind themselves of the responsibility that they have and what they're doing. Um, uh, and what, what was the focus of your graduate work? I didn't remember my real final title in the end of it. It was something like taking uh, a land use problem where you have thousands and thousands of possible solutions and, you know, we, we can sit and we can model and we can say, okay, there's all these different ways we can do it. And then how do you evaluate which one's best? But you're never going to get everybody to agree that um, improving the way that animal habitats in the area are linked together by corridors is more important than having enough um, commercial land use. So we took the big space of thousands and thousands of solutions and work to cluster them into options where you couldn't necessarily say one was better than the other. So if we had something that was 
just as good for the animals, but not as much commercial use. We throw that one out. But if we had one that was better for the animals, worse for commercial, another that was better for commercial use, worse for the animals, uh, we try to build up clumps of clusters that were similar to each of those so that then we could come down to a handful of, of representations of what possible solutions might look like, which is something that would be a little more useful at a town hall where you can put up a poster of five to ten different things or different options for land use as opposed to here's the hundred thousand possibilities. And um, so you moved from um, that to uh, working in industry and then to being independent and um, doing uh, software development. And then um, you decided to go sailing for two years. And I want to ask you a question about that because that's just fascinating to me. But um, you, um, if I understand correctly from your blog, you learned to sail from a book initially, um, which sounds very brave to me. Kind of. Um, I took I think two weeks of sailing classes when I was really young. I grew up in a fishing village in rural Nova Scotia, um, but I didn't really remember any of that. And then after I graduated from university, wanted a hobby, wanted something. So my husband and I bought a 17-foot Hobie cat and a book and learned. So it was – Hobie cat's almost like a bicycle version of a sailboat. You go – you you know you're going to get dumped in the water. You know you're going to get wet. You're just farting around on a usually a fairly small body of water. So go out, make your mistakes, have your fun. Um, and then when we got closer to, to heading off, it was time to deal with a serious sailboat that – no, actually had some mass and we actually had to know what we were doing to manage it. And um, uh, where do you, I'm just curious. Um, uh, so you, you eventually um, decided to go on like a very long journey. Um, uh, what was that like being uh, itinerant in that way uh, and on the water? I imagine most of the time. We sailed about 15,000 miles in two years which is actually a fair bit for people doing this kind of thing, unless they're crazy circumnavigators and they want to go all the way around in a relatively short time. Um, it worked out to like 30 to 40 hours a week underway on average. Um, but generally we did that in kind of big spurts. So we did um, most of the time we just, you know, sail during the day, do our little hop, go wherever. But a couple times a year we do a major repositioning uh, one of them was from Virginia right down to the British Virgin Islands in the Caribbean. Uh, so we did that twice. That was 12 days straight and about 1,500 miles. Um, and that isn't so bad because after a couple of days of sleep deprivation, you really stop forming memories. You just kind of go out and do it and live with it. And then you land there and deal with customs and go out and have a big margarita and tacos and uh, – <laughs> then you kind of enjoy the lifestyle down there. There's actually a really great community of cruisers and it's coming back. It's been the, the hardest thing to get used to is I can't randomly accost people in the grocery store just because we have something in common. Whereas if you both live on boats and you can figure that out because they're carrying their wallet in a dry bag because they don't want it to get wet in the dinghy on the way back to the boat. <laughs> um, it's pretty much fair game to walk up and invite them to dinner or over for drinks or something. So it's it's a really cool and neat community. There's not a ton of people out there, but uh, there's definitely definitely enough to to stay social. One thing I've always been really curious about with that is, um, can you just, uh, as I'm saying in Australia, can you just rock up um, to any port um, and you know park and get out? Do you have to arrange anything in advance, or is it are you completely, you know, uh, you can do what you want? Uh, through North America and the Caribbean, 
if you don't have a pet with you, you can generally show up and then just find customs. There are slightly different rules depending on where you are. Um, for example, U.S. only, the captain goes to customs, so you have to nominate a captain and they go and they take everybody's passport. And uh, Sorry, got that backwards. In the U.S., they want everybody at customs. A lot of other countries, they only want the captain to go and bring everybody's passport and everybody else kind of stays on the boat confined until you're cleared. Um, if you have a pet, there's a number of countries that want you to arrange to have a vet meet them or to deal with a bunch of paperwork in advance. So we travel her a dog, and sometimes it was great. The French countries, you show up, you find a, generally a little computer station or a little office somewhere. Sometimes it's in the laundromat or a bar, and log into their little customs online sim and type in your passport numbers and stuff. And the bartender or laundromat owner checks your paperwork and says, oh, yeah, okay, you're fine. And then you get places like Antigua or the British Virgin Islands, uh, generally formerly British colonies, and they want piles of paperwork for the dog and make an appointment when you show up and, you know, land on this specific spot in this specific dock and you stay here and you don't move and you go to three different offices trying to get the paperwork all sorted out and then you have to go back to the first office and then you have to go back to the second one and stuff. So, but yeah, if you're just a couple of humans on a boat, there are very few countries where you need prior permission. You mostly just show up. And um, I guess and, one last, oh, sorry, go ahead. Unless you need a visa, depending where you're from. That's the only thing. But it'd be same as 99% of the time, it's the same as arriving on an airplane, except the States. Right. Um, and uh, what's the, what's, I'm just curious in all that time, what's the most interesting thing you saw on the water? The oddest thing we found uh, was our first trip from Virginia to uh, going down to the Caribbean. And we were probably three days offshore. And my husband was up on watch. I was asleep and I got up and he's just kind of very perplexed. He's staring and says, there's a boat out there and it's not moving. So as the sun came up, you could kind of see the, the little shadow on the horizon. It's like, it's, it's right on our path. Like we're headed within like a hundred feet of the thing. And we got there and we discovered that it had no one on it. It was hundreds of miles out in the Gulf Stream. Uh, and it turned out that the storm that happened the day that we had intended to leave, um, another boat had gotten caught up in it. Just a whole bunch of circumstances that just put them in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Uh, and the Coast Guard ended up pulling them off. And we, they, and they were only 30 or 50 miles off of uh, the U.S. coast. But I guess the, the boat drifted a bit and the Gulf Stream picked it up and it was out there bobbing by itself a couple of days later. Um, wow. It's a little eerie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing you then like call in on the radio to report or? Uh, call in the radio just mostly for, hey, nobody run over. Um, and we happened to have a satellite phone on board as one of our backup communication systems. So we did call the Coast Guard. So I was able to get confirmation at that time that, yeah, there's definitely nobody on there. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, there's a big debate in um, boating on whether or not you would sink boats in that but i guess in this case the coast guard opted not to and uh yeah she was she was out there floating around with nobody on her yeah that does sound eerie um uh i as as i understand it you um on the moving on to your your book um you wrote the book at least in part while you were on this on this journey yes i wrote 
most of it started as blog posts or the first quarter or so started as blog posts. And when I started seeing that I was getting enough interest in and people cared about the topic and, and I'd settled on kind of one topic, I wrote probably about 80% of it um, while we were traveling, while we were transient. And then we came home to visit family over the summer and I just kind of took a week and a half of sit, focus, finish this while I have good internet access. And um, had you written a book before or was this your first time doing that? No, this is uh, this is definitely the very first thing of, of that magnitude that I've written. I think it's actually longer than my master's thesis. And what was the experience like? Um, uh, did you find you had um, issues being motivated or did it just kind of just naturally flow out of you? It was fairly natural while I was traveling. It, the first six months, it was great to kind of have no commitments. Um, after that, it was time to have a purpose and a reason to do things. Uh, and my other motivation was after we sold the house, had the boat, have everything lined up, my husband was just finishing off his uh, his two weeks notice at work, Apple announced Swift, which meant that I had just left with a valuable skill set in a programming language that would probably not be used when I was coming back. So there was pretty good motivation to, you know, write enough Swift and enough things to show that, yeah, okay, I can do this, I'm capable, and, and I'm not going to be making my initial mistakes on client projects. Um, so yeah, between that and just not having a lot of other time pressures and being able to <laughs> very often go to a bar, get in for a couple hours, hack up some code examples and stuff, and then go back and write when it felt like a good time to do it. It, it worked out fairly easily. And when you started learning Swift and now that you, I mean, obviously, uh, have, um, fully grokked it. Um, uh, what's your opinion of it? Do you think that it's a home run or are there, um, things that still need to be worked out? Well, hopefully there's still stuff that needs to be worked out because they're still intending to make changes. Right. Uh, there's actually a little thing on one of the mailing lists yesterday that they're going to look at things like JSON serialization and, and passing data back and forth and, turning it from objects into JSON because we have so many parsers in Swift right now and they've all got pros and cons, but definitely uh, it seems to be a pain point. It's funny, at first I didn't notice much difference. It was just like, oh, well, Objective-C Swift or whatever. It's, they're slightly different, but I don't mind. Uh, and recently I have a client uh, that I've just started working with last month and a half and they use Objective-C and I really notice now how much more productive I am in Swift. There's just a whole lot of stuff that's easier to do and a whole lot of stuff I don't need to think about. Uh, it's just a, a much safer language. There are also then obviously things that are much more difficult to do in Swift, but there are things that you don't want to do that often. So overall, I'm, I'm a huge fan, absolutely loving it, but I, I'm still okay with them making improvements. <laughs> as much of a pain as migrating versions has been. Yeah, speaking of making improvements, um, I saw in the introduction, in the thanks section at the beginning of your book that you worked with a technical editor. And I was wondering, um, you know, for those listening who might be thinking of writing a technical book themselves one day, what was that experience like? Uh, so Michael's not a, you know, general professional technical editor or anything, and there's definitely a value to those. Uh, I just felt after having gone through a couple of versions of Swift and having written the book and, and been in the weeds in that code for so long, I knew there was stuff that I hadn't cleaned up well enough as Swift had matured that, you know, the way I did things on day one was not the way I should have done things a, a year later, but it was hard to, to see that myself. Uh, so I had actually another freelancer go through it 
uh, from a technical perspective through the book and through the code uh, to help make things more consistent, uh, more modern, um, easier to follow and that kind of thing. It, it was a good experience. Definitely a nice, quick, you know, hand stuff off, get a turnaround and it was hugely valuable. And the great thing about self-publishing is I didn't have to do that until I was sure the book was going to sell. So I didn't have to go through the hassle and the time and the effort and the expense, whether that would be to me or a publisher of bringing in someone else to evaluate something if I wasn't sure that it was going to be worthwhile. And what was the signal that you got that told you it was it was going to sell? I was mostly just getting enough comments on blog posts and, and people both reading them and then wanting to apply them to their own projects and coming in with, well, I tried to do this, but I'm running into this error. So I knew people were at least uh, not just browsing through and, and skimming the blog posts that I'd written, but were actually needing to do that kind of thing in their jobs or their hobby projects or, or whatever. Uh, so the intention of the book was guide them through you know, the process to build a bigger complete app and, and all the different steps that, you know, when I write a post about how do you read data from a web server and half the questions are, okay, so how do I write it now? Okay, now I know I need to write that. need to do that. Or, you know, what about authentication? How do I deal with this? It was almost every chapter was a, a fairly direct follow-up from a question that I got from a reader on a blog post. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, was um, after you published the book, was getting feedback from readers uh, something that you engaged in or invited explicitly? Yeah, I still get a fair number of emails. I don't know if they're necessarily book readers versus blog readers. I don't tend to differentiate. Sometimes they tell me, sometimes they don't. Um, but I definitely get a fair bit of it. And I do tend to encourage it. And actually, um, of my last four freelance contracts, two of them were book readers. They were people who uh, worked in a, a generally a slightly smaller organization, not something tiny, but uh, you know, not IBM or anything, and saw that there would be some value to uh, an iOS app in their organization, had a web service backend already existing uh, for some kind of web app, but just thought like, oh, this little slice of this would make an awesome iPhone app, and bought the book and put together a little prototype themselves internally, and, and usually... It, I would get an email from them eventually saying, oh, hey, do you do any consulting? Because we'd like to build this out and we've got this little prototype and, you know, my boss is interested, so now i got to build it. Right. And if I go back on my email, I'll find like four months earlier, one or two little technical questions of when they were first starting that I had no idea this was someone doing this kind of work, that they were trying to get something going in and might eventually be a consulting client. But it would be like, okay, I've got this really weird authentication system. How do I get this to to work and submit my token properly. So that I didn't expect that, but there's definitely been, well, there's been at least two. And um, did you, did you publish the book before it was finished or did you fin publish it when it was, you know, done, done? Pretty much when it was done. Uh, I, there were a couple of chapters further on in the book. So the first quarter was stuff that started as blog posts and then it just kind of got reprocessed into a, a nicer format for the book. And then as I wrote it, every few chapters I'd hit a topic that worked well as a blog post and I'd kind of slice that out and post it and see, you know, kind of given this, what are people asking? What are they doing? What are they saying is unclear? But yeah, it was published as a, a complete entity, although it's been through a couple of edits now. Oh, that's a really interesting process. Um, so you're writing a chapter for a book, but you publish a version of it as a blog post. 
while you're writing it. Hmm. Um, uh, I wanted to ask, um, uh, just one of my, one of my last questions. Um, what was it about lean pub, um, that drew you to us rather than one of the many other options you could have chosen? It was nice not being able to fuss with all the layout all the time, because I'm definitely quite capable of spending three days tweaking a CSS file and not actually writing any content. And the workflow worked really well while I was traveling to be able to just hammer out a bunch of markdown and then you know, sync it up to Dropbox or, or push it up to GitHub when I had internet and then deal with whatever the updated formatting was and, and the, the compiled version later. But being able to – and markdown was really easy to reuse on my blog. So it's uh, based on a static site generator that uses markdown. So it was – yeah, the writing the format was like that the – yeah, that's Sorry, I got a little. Uh, no, no, that's okay. Um, uh, we've never had anyone um, uh, working in quite that manner before, and it's interesting to hear about the the advantages of um, uh, you know, sort of doing the formatting work under those like for you under those circumstances. Um, you know that that that's so interesting that you say that. I mean that you know that I'm like that too, and so are I think most people who write. They end up uh, just formatting, um, and it's such a it's such a an interesting trap. Um, to fall into, um, uh, you know, but yeah, we, we try to, and we get this question from people every once in a while, you know, they'll be at the beginning of their process of writing their book and they'll email us with like a long list of like, why can't I, and I'm not saying this critically. I mean, I come from this position internally myself, but you know, why can't I change the distance, like the spacing between the last paragraph before a list and the list itself? You know, and I totally understand where it comes from. But what we always try to say to people is, you know, A, thank you for your feedback. You know, we are always trying to improve the options. Keep it, we'll keep it in mind. But B, if your book isn't done yet, <laughs> we really seriously recommend that you not worry about any of mm-hmm. those um, until it's done. Um, and one of the, um, and there's actually a very practical reason for that, which is that in an age where people are more and more reading on, uh, ebook readers or, you know, in apps like, um, the the Kindle app, the reader actually has a lot of control themselves over what things look like. Um, and also, you know, things look different on different devices. So getting really preoccupied with readers aren't so preoccupied with, let's say appearance, like they might have been in the past because they might, you know, you know, make the font size bigger. They might make the font size smaller. They might change the color even. Um, you know, they can do, the reader has a lot more control. And so as a, as a consequence, they're not really necessarily as, um, concerned with minutiae when they're reading eBooks. Um, I guess my last question is, um, if there were one thing we could fix or one thing we could build for you, um, if you have any thoughts on that, what would that, what do you think that would be? I think the only slight annoyance I ran into was uh, formatting code samples. I could either have syntax highlighting or I could have, I think it was line numbers. But it was one or the, oh no, it was the um, insert and delete uh, functionality. So to show a line being struck out of a code sample, mm-hmm. I think if I use that, I think I lost the syntax highlighting. It was something tiny like that. And it was the kind of thing that I looked at. And I'm like, oh, should I, but really, it really doesn't matter. No, it's it's one or the other. Um, yeah, it'd be handy, but I can see technically why 
it may not be worth the effort. Yeah, that's we've we've definitely had that um, request in the past. Um, uh, I have to you know defer to my colleagues on that one, not being a programmer, having written a programming book myself. Um, but yeah, as I understand it, um, there's there's something just tricky about that particular instance, um, and you know. I suppose it's possible that something might be done about it one day, but it's um, currently, uh, it, it, I think this also has a little bit to do with the way things appear in different formats. Um, it's tricky to do the insert delete thing with the um, syntax highlighting, but thanks very much for um, uh, your vote. Um, it, it counts. Um, uh, I just wanted to say uh, before we go, uh, Christina, thanks for taking the time. Um, I enjoyed learning about um your career path and also about the sailing. Um, and I wanted to say um, thanks very much for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Great. Well, thanks a lot. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks.